Welcome to This Civic Moment, where we dive headfirst into the issues affecting our communities and explore the possibilities of our civic future with local and regional leaders. I'm Bethany Copeland. And I'm Eric Ryder. We're graduate fellows with the Gephardt Institute for Civic and Community Engagement at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for being with us today. Today we're speaking with Tony Messenger. Tony is the St. Louis Post-Dispatch's Metro columnist, writing four columns a week in a position he has held since September 2016. He was editorial page editor from July 2012 until becoming Metro columnist. He joined the Post-Dispatch in 2008 as a capital correspondent and political columnist in Jefferson City. He began his career at a small weekly newspaper in Colorado, where he was born and raised. He's worked at weeklies, dailies, and magazines in Colorado, Arizona, Nebraska, South Dakota, and Missouri. In 2021, he published his first book, Profit and Punishment, How America Criminalizes the Poor in the Name of Justice. In 2019, Messenger won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary for his series of columns exposing the experiences of poor rural Missourians in debtors' prisons. In 2016, Messenger was awarded a Missouri Honor Medal, the highest award bestowed by the University of Missouri's School of Journalism. That same year, he won a national headliner for editorial writing. In 2015, Messenger was a Pulitzer finalist for his series of editorials on Ferguson and won the Sigma Delta Chi Award for Best Editorials of the Year, given by the Society of Professional Journalists. He has won many other state and regional honors for his writing. Welcome, Tony. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, growing up and the values instilled in you that led you to the work you're doing now, and then also how St. Louis specifically has kind of shaped you in your work? Okay. So I grew up in Littleton, Colorado. Uh, my dad was a teacher and a coach, and and my mom worked for a while in the school cafeteria and did various odd jobs. and. One of the interesting things I think about my youth that I, I actually brought up in a conversation with somebody the other day, I was speaking to some journalism students, and they said, you know, people kind of go after you a lot on social media and, and in the comments and reacting to your columns. How do you deal with that sort of criticism? Well, when I was a kid, I used to go with my dad when he was umpiring, <laughs> uh, you know, baseball <laughs> games and softball <laughs> games and refereeing basketball games. And, and sitting there as a kid watching my dad get yelled at uh, by all these folks on both sides. And, uh, and he never really reacted too much. I mean, you know, he, he, he tended to uh, know how to deal with it and manage the flow of, of, of the conversation. And it was, you know, I had no idea at the time, obviously, I was going to be a journalist, had no inkling. Um, but it was good training and sort of calling balls and strikes and being able to deal with personal conflict without making it personal, without uh, constantly getting angry when somebody's criticizing you or name calling or mm -hmm. something like that. So um, I think back about that as a, as a memorable experience as a young person. Um, one of the other stories about my youth that I remember, and I, I mentioned this uh, in a video um, after I won the Pulitzer because it was such a, a, a key moment, I think, in my life as a writer. I had a uh, ninth-grade English teacher named Brother Paul Fitzgerald. I went to a Christian Brothers High School in Denver and Mullen High School. And uh, Brother Paul one time gave me uh, a C on an essay, and it was like 
I was dumbfounded. I mm-hmm. was the straight A student, yeah. and I was I knew I was a good writer. I didn't know that's what I wanted to do at the time, but I was just so angry, and and I knew that a couple of the kids around me, uh, who generally didn't get the grades I got, got got the same grade as me on this essay. And I was he could tell I was angry, and he he called me up and pulled me out into the hallway, and he said, "You don't like the grade I gave you," and I said. I said, no. I said, I, I normally get A's and B's. I don't understand why, why this is a C. And he said, is it your best work? And I said, well, it's better than so-and-so. And he got the same grade. I said, I didn't ask about so-and-so. He said, is it your best work? And he probably, I was angry, and he probably had to ask me two or three times. And I finally got to the point where I understood what he was saying. Yeah, I had rushed it. It wasn't my best work. I said, no, it's not. And he said, you get an A from me on your papers when you give me your best work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was so blessed to have a teacher like that who, you know, recognized something and challenged me and, and ended up being one of those moments that, uh, that you know, I remember, you know, looking back now on my childhood. So yeah. I moved around a lot before I came to St. Louis. I, I uh, you know, started in really small newspapers. So I worked in small communities in Colorado, in Nebraska, in South Dakota, in Arizona. Um, and it took me a while to get to St. Louis, but been here since 2011 and it's home. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, going back for just a minute to that high school classroom, you said you weren't interested in journalism at that time. So what kind of sparked that interest and got you on the path? So I went to Loyola University of Chicago uh, after I graduated high school, and I thought I was going to be a priest or a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was sort of the path, and I, I chose uh, courses in theology and philosophy and psychology, and I lived in an off-campus honors dorm called Gonzaga Hall, and it turns out that the editor of the college paper and the sports editor of the college paper both lived there. And before school started, uh, you know, we, we were there a week or so early before school started. I just happened to be in, the, in our dorm's lunchroom talking to the two of them, and it came up that I played soccer in high school and that I enjoyed soccer. And the sports editor says, you know, I could use somebody to go cover the men's soccer games. And I was like, well, what do I have to do? He's like, you take a notebook and a pen and you watch the game and you, you, you take notes on it. And when it's done, you talk to the coaches and the players and you write me a story. And I said, well, I haven't taken any journalism classes. He's like, come on, you're a smart guy. You know soccer. I don't have anybody who knows soccer. So I did it. And I loved it. And I was like, wait a minute. I get to stand on the field <laughs> and hang out watching this game that I love and – go in the locker room and talk to these guys and, and, and write a story about it. And I was hooked. Um, and I became a sports writer at the Loyola Phoenix as a freshman before I had taken any journalism classes. So we're three or four weeks into the year. I've written a couple of soccer stories. I might have written something else. And all of a sudden, something happens with the sports editor. He had, you know... an academic issue or something, and all of a sudden he's not the sports editor anymore. And the editor comes to me in the dorm one day and says, hey, do you want to be the sports editor? And I was like, you're kidding. I mean, I 
I, I still haven't taken any journalism classes. I, I don't know what I'm doing here. And she says, yeah, you do. You're a good writer and you, you know sports and um, you do stuff on time and we'll figure it out. And so I became the sports editor of my college paper my freshman year, like, you know, a month into uh, going to school. And I, I fell in love with it. And so you uh, previously mentioned you worked kind of a little bit all over the Midwest as a journalist. What about St. Louis made you want to stay here? So St. Louis is an amazing city. Um, and it's one of these enigmas where its strengths are sometimes also its weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a city that has all the amenities of a city that used to be the fourth biggest city in the in the country, as it was back in 1904 when the World's Fair was here. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, because it still has that structure of a city that used to be much larger, um, we struggle with lack of density downtown. Um, not even some days because there aren't enough people here, but there's people on Wash Avenue, there's people at Ballpark Village, there's people at Union Station, there's people in Central West End, in Soulard, in Tower Grove, but they're all spread out. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's one of the strengths of this city because we have all these great neighborhoods. We have all these great places. Um, and so, you know, St. Louis just became one of these cities that uh, it's a great news town. Um, and I, I mean that in a lot of different ways, not just because bad things happen, but because um, the stories of the nation are told here. Mm-hmm. Uh, St. Louis, sadly, uh, but importantly, uh, many of the stories in St. Louis are tied up in race mm-hmm. and w- we are tied up in political division and battles between the urban core and the rural Republicans who, who run the legislature. And those conflicts are meaningful and they help me tell uh, important stories. Um, St. Louis is a city that values its journalism. I'm so proud to work at a newspaper that, that carries on the Pulitzer legacy in a meaningful way. Um, and this newspaper, not just because Joseph Pulitzer used to own us, but we have won 19 Pulitzers over the over the years in this newspaper's history and, you know, continue to strive to produce good journalism in a city that really cares about its journalism, I think, in a, in a meaningful way and not just from the Post-Dispatch, but but through the other, uh, you know, avenues in which journalists in this community work as well. So um, this is a city where great things can happen. Uh, many great things are happening. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm a soccer fan. Mm-hmm. I was uh, so excited about St. Louis City SC and their and their home opener. I missed it because I was out of town, but watched it on my phone at a bar in Tulsa <laughs> and was so excited to see uh, soccer take center stage in St. Louis and for it to be downtown, for it to, you know, be in the core of the city so that every time St. Louis City is playing, um, people see City Park and they see the arch and they see Union Station and they see this wonderful, vibrant city uh, and and hopefully presented in a different way than some of the other headlines that some people outside of St. Louis mm-hmm. sometimes view our community. Yeah. When along those lines with soccer and your background in soccer, um, after the inaugural home game on Saturday, what are your hopes and fears around sports and specifically around the economic impacts of the region? 
Well, you know, it's funny because I have this this love-hate relationship with professional sports. I am a fan. I I have been a sports fan my whole life. I grew up in a sports family. All of my kids have played uh, sports. I've coached many of them in soccer over the years. And as a columnist, I've, I've written some critical pieces about the process that led to this great home opener and this exciting celebration of St. Louis. One of the great things about that story was the fact that before voters said yes, they said no. Mm-hmm. When, the, when the previous ownership group was trying to get owners to finance a stadium in a city that struggles financially, the voters said, no, 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 you pay for it. We want soccer, but you pay for it. And the Taylor family stepped up uh, and, and the Kavanaugh stepped up and other people came in and invested and they built that beautiful park. And it's not funded mostly by taxpayers. It's mostly funded by private sources. And so that to me is a, re- is, a, is a real success story. I think too often in sports, we oversell um, what a sta- that a stadium is, is a nirvana mm-hmm. uh, that's going to completely fix a city. City Park isn't going to do that, but it is going to help this city. And the specific place where they chose it uh, near Union Station and you know, down the street from from Bush Stadium and from the Enterprise Center, um, it does create this walkable sports mecca in this downtown uh, uh, city that I think really long term can help solve some of our problems by increasing the density, the number of people that are walking around and going to you know, sports bars and places to eat and staying in the hotels and those sorts of things. So I think the the, the story of um, that specific soccer park on top of the, the other things going on downtown and where they built it is a real hopeful story for St. Louis. Yeah. Um, how do you think that your role as a journalist has changed over time? Um, and specifically in your work with political reporting. And do you think that the ethic, ethical obligations of journalists have kind of shifted and ebbed and flowed along with um, the political climate over the past 10 years? So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> my, my, my job's changed a lot because I do different things. I have been mm-hmm. the editorial page editor of the Post-Dispatch. I've been a reporter who covered the Capitol, and and I have a very specific and wonderful role right now as the Metro columnist uh, telling the stories that I want to tell wherever Mm -hmm. I want to go. And so, um, you know, I have the best job in journalism as it relates to that. And and I have um, the the ability and, in fact, the, 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 the calling in my job to advocate for the things that I think are important as a columnist. Um, and I do that not necessarily through the first person when I'm writing my columns, but in the topics that I choose and the voices I choose to elevate and um, how I choose to frame uh, the topics that I write about. Specifically as it relates to politics, yeah, a lot's changed. Um, I go back to – I was first hired by the Post-Dispatch in 2008, and I covered the Capitol uh, in Jeff City for three years. And back in those days, there was a different sort of give and take between journalists and people in the political world, in part because there were more journalists. 
in part because there was still this commitment, this ethic uh, amongst the professionals who worked in politics and journalism um, that the truth really mattered, that words matter and what they say and what they mean matter. And there used to be much more give and take where a, a, a political spokesperson might send me a news release that includes a couple of, of fluffy sentences that, that have nothing to do with the no, news, and I'd make it very clear, I'm, I'm not running this. This isn't news. This is not going to make it. Uh, if your candidate wants to speak to me personally um, and, and say something meaningful, great, but I'm not going to do this. And, and I think these days, because it's so hard sometimes to get direct contact with uh, elected officials because they use social media and other avenues to communicate that sometimes I think uh, there's a little bit more kind of he said, she said reporting rather than journalists being uh, authoritative truth tellers. Um, and I think right now in the current political environment that we have, it's our job to be truth tellers. I think our democracy depends on us uh, telling the best version of the truth that we can. Yeah, and along these lines, there's also been a shift in how local politics are now often overshadowed by national political narratives. So how does that impact the way that you and other journalists cover local and state politics? And what are the challenges that are arise in the re reduction in local and state-focused news sources? Well, I think the biggest uh, uh, failing of journalism right now, and it's, it's a matter of, of the economics of our business, is that we don't have as many people covering those local races as we used to. Um, when I started in the Post-Dispatch in 2008, uh, I mean, I remember we had people at um, bi-state meetings and uh, MSD meetings and, uh, you know, freelancers that would go to Baldwin and Ellisville and Chesterfield and Florissant and cover their city councils in a, in a somewhat meaningful way. And a lot of that doesn't happen right now just because of numbers. Mm -hmm. And so when the municipal and school board elections come up as they are now, um, I just don't think they're getting the sort of coverage that they used to get or that they might get. You know, maybe there's one or two races that, that we focus on, maybe, maybe you know, sort of a big picture story on the, the move from 28 aldermen to 14 and that sort of thing. But, but I don't think we get into the nuts and bolts of individual races as much as we used to. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's unfortunate because I think democracy suffers a little bit because of that. Uh, the other part of your question, yes, I think national, I think the tone of national politics uh, tends to uh, overshadow um, actual local conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and a good example of that is school board elections and county executive elections and state representative elections where politicians are taking positions on national issues that they have absolutely no control over or very little control over mm -hmm. as politicians. But they're doing that because today's culture war becomes the way in which you proclaim your democraticness or your republicanness. Uh, those probably are not words, but you understand <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Uh, and and so that national political tone sort of 
uh, has an impact in local politics and generally not in a good way. Um, most local politics, whether it's in St. Louis or in West County uh, or, or elsewhere in, in rural Missouri, most real local politics isn't very partisan or at least hasn't historically been. It's about, you know, building roads and, and, and hiring good staff and, you know, did you take my ash tree down in time because of the ash borer and all of these mm-hmm. different things. That's that's really what local politics is. D- did you fund my school so that my kid has books and laptops and those sorts of things? Is Are my teacher, you know, is my kid's teachers getting paid? Um, those generally didn't used to be partisan issues, but these days they have become that. Uh, our local politics has been infected by sort of the culture wars, and that's that's not good for democracy because, you know, my, my, my neighbors, uh, I live in the Rockwood School District, and we've dealt with a variety of really contentious school board uh, issues in the last few years that have very little effect on, on – most of what our kids are doing in school, but have a huge effect on the on the political atmosphere and the divisiveness in the district. And that's really unfortunate because I don't think most of my neighbors that have kids that go to school uh, in the community that, that I live in care about the culture war issues. They care about their kids learning and advancing and, you know, maybe going to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the St. Louis region um, made kind of national headlines in 2014 after the murder of Michael Brown and the Ferguson uprising. Um, during that time, you did a lot of reporting. What were the stories that you felt needed to be told kind of from the ground from St. Louis? So August 9th, 2014 really changed my career mm-hmm. uh, because it it changed St. Louis and it and it brought into focus our historic issues with both race and uh, sort of geopolitical division, the great divorce between St. Louis City and St. Louis County and the creation of all those municipalities, many of which were created originally to keep black people out. Mm-hmm. Um, and now some of them, unfortunately, majority black communities being used in the same way to keep Hispanic people out or other immigrants out. I mean, you know, we, we, we tend to repeat history in St. Louis. But the, the story of underlying police brutality and racial division in the courts and using uh, the courts as a fundraiser um, by targeting poor people with with ticket quotas and and poor people who couldn't afford to pay all of these driving tickets that they got for minor things that got added up one after another and ending up going to jail over that that became a huge part of my reporting so uh, you know in the in the 9 years since um almost 9 years since uh Ferguson um I've focused a lot of my reporting on uh, racial divisions in, his, in, in St. Louis, the history of those racial divisions and how they affect uh, lots of different elements of our, of our major institutions and our daily life, uh, and also criminal justice reform, uh, particularly the criminalization of poverty. That's been something that I've, I've spent a lot of time on in the last few years. And that's a massive national problem. It, it is a problem that I think for a lot of us, we were introduced to it uh, in Ferguson, one of the key underlying issues 
uh, in that Ferguson uprising wasn't just the uh, police brutality issue, but the fact that so many poor, young, black people were being nickel and dimed to death by the courts and that it wasn't to make the community safer. It was for those municipalities to collect a backdoor tax through the court system. And that kind of mentality exists in lots of different places all over the country. Uh, And so, you know, I tell people all the time, Ferguson changed me because I, I write about, I continue to write about the things I learned in Ferguson and will for the rest of my career. Yeah, when you ended up winning a Pulitzer in 2019, correct, um, based on this reporting. And most recently, you wrote a book, um, Profit and Punishment, that shines a light on the realities faced by folks around the U.S. who are involved in the criminal legal system. So you, you share three stories of single mothers whose lives have been affected by the way that the system turns a profit off of smaller offenses. What was the experience like researching and interviewing these women, and what is the process like for synthesizing these harrowing human stories into calls for action? You know, one of the most amazing things, uh, opportunities that I have as a journalist is to get folks like Brooke Bergen, Kendi Kilman, uh, and Sasha Darby, my three main characters in that book, to trust me and tell me their stories. Um, And for the book, I chose... These three single women, one from Oklahoma, one from Missouri, uh, single mothers, excuse me, one from uh, Oklahoma, one from Missouri, and one from South Carolina, because their experiences were so compelling. Um, These weren't, you know, dastardly career criminals. These were people that committed minor offenses. In in Brooke's case, the first one I ever wrote about, because I wrote about her in the Post-Dispatch first, stole an $8 tube of mascara from a Walmart Mm -hmm. and ended up serving a year in county jail and then owing $15,000 for the privilege of serving that time in jail and was being called before the court. When I met Brooke, she hadn't committed another crime since, since her shoplifting, but she still had to go to the court once a month to explain to the judge, here's here's 50 bucks I've got to pay down on this $15,000 debt that is absolutely destroying my life that I'm never going to be able to repay. And oh, by the way, if I can't get off my, my part-time minimum wage job today to come to court, I recognize that you're going to issue a warrant and put me back in jail. Um, that sort of story happens all over America, and it's right. legitimately debtor's prisons. And um, I was so honored to have those women and other folks invite me into their lives and, and, and trust me with their stories. Because uh, as people have read my book and talked to me about it, you know, they, they tell me it's, it, you know, it's maddening. I, I had a woman come up to me after uh, one of my talks on the book, and she said, I want to compliment you on your book, but I'm afraid of that you might be offended by what I want to say. And I said, what do you mean? And she says, well, I didn't like your book. Your book made me mad. <laughs> and I said, that's the right answer. Yeah. That's, you know, it's not an easy topic. It's not a fun read. Uh, it's a book that should make you mad because our criminal justice system should not be used uh, as a backdoor taxing system that causes devastating effects on poor people's lives. And it happens. It still happens in Missouri. It happens all over the country. So, um, you know, again, that book uh, wouldn't have happened without Ferguson. Uh, mm-hmm. That that book wouldn't have happened without 
uh, lots of folks uh, who are in really vulnerable places in their lives trusting me with their stories, and I'm always grateful to them. Um, are there any particular stories or people you've covered or issues um, that have meant the most to you? Well, you know, you mentioned Brooke Bergen. Brooke Bergen's one of the people that, you know, I, I, I got – I got close to Brooke and a lot of the folks that I wrote about in my book because they had such, you know, compelling, meaningful stories. Uh, you know, one of the women that I wrote about in the book is a woman named LaShawn Casey. Um, when I first wrote about LaShawn's case, like Brooke, she was from Dent County and had been, you know, abused by the system. Um, when I first wrote about LaShawn's case, I didn't name her. She had asked me to keep her anonymous, and then she let me you know, write about her uh, personally in the, with her name in the book. And, uh, you know, LaShawn's somebody who um, ended up getting out of prison and trying to rebuild her life, and she came to St. Louis to do it. And, and I helped connect her to Criminal Justice Ministry, which is a local nonprofit that helps people coming out of state prisons with housing and all of the different obstacles that they have. And, you know, I love writing about folks like that because it's such a reminder that when people talk about the criminal justice system who haven't really experienced it, um, they use stereotypes like, you know, those people in jail, they're all criminals or whatever. Well, no, most of the people in jail don't have a death sentence. Mm -hmm. Very few people in, in jail or prison have a death sentence. Most of the people in our county jail, in our city jail, in, an, in our state prisons are people that we expect to come back out and live in our community. So why aren't we doing what we can to help make their transition easier? Because it's better for us, it's better for our families, it's better for their families, it's better for our economies. Um, and I love uh, the, the opportunity that People like LaShawn and Brooke and Sasha and Candy, you know, letting me into their lives creates this this bond that, you know, I Facebook message with a lot of those folks all the time now. And it's and it's, you know, not for a story, but it's, you know, how's your kid? How's your mm -hmm. grandkid? Saw a nice picture of you, you know, with your family the other day. You, you can't write about people uh, with the topics that that they let me write about them with that are really personal without. Uh, you know, creating some sort of lasting connection. Mm. Yeah. And um, what do you see as the role of journalism in disseminating general information as well as stimulating civic conversations? So uh, early in my career, I had an editor say something along the lines of, you know, uh, a good newspaper reflects their community. Mm. And and I think that's true, but a, a great newspaper moves their community. Um, I, I think our job is not just to, you know, be a mirror of St. Louis and, and, and show St. Louis and say, hey, look, this is what happened yesterday, but, but also identify those issues where we can make a difference and, and really try to make a difference and really try to make our community a better place. I think most journalists get into this business with some general value related to that. I want to make this a better place. Uh, you, you're both getting your, your graduate degrees in social work, and I think social work is, is, is another one of those 
you know, professions where people get into it wanting to make a difference in their world. And there's that, that ethic that just sort of drives you. And it's tough sometimes in journalism when, you know, the, the demands of the deadlines and what's coming, you know, today and tomorrow and the next day sometimes get us away from these big thoughts. But it's important for us to have these big thoughts and take some time to think about what am I doing right now? How is this column going to make St. Louis a better place? Um, and sometimes I think about that in terms of audience. Um, who am I really trying to reach here? Is this a column where I'm trying to move readers to call their lawmakers? Or is this a column where I'm trying to identify that specific lawmaker to, to, to make sure that, that he or she reads this and recognizes the error of their ways and maybe does something to, you know, to change their mind or, or, or otherwise, uh, you know, do, do better in their job. Um, I mean, that's what ultimately I want to do as a columnist. I want to have an impact on not just shining the light on injustices, but doing something to make those injustices go away. Uh, and sometimes that involves changing policy. Sometimes that involves, um, you know, my series uh, on debtors' prisons at least contributed to a state law being passed and, and the Supreme Court taking up the issue and, and ultimately issuing, issuing a really positive ruling of, of, uh, opposing debtors' prisons. And, um, you know, those are the sorts of things that as journalists, uh, you know, I wake up every day wanting to do that in some sort of way. Well, we appreciate all of your work, and unfortunately, we're coming up on time, but we'd like to end our podcast with one final question. What is currently giving you hope? Chantel Fisher gives me hope. I covered a uh, hearing that she was in this week. Chantel Fisher is uh, somebody who spent a fair amount of her youth incarcerated, uh, walked out of prison the last time, November 11th, 2011, and has built up this incredible nonprofit called Soul Fisher Ministries that um, serves children all throughout our community um, whose parents are or have been incarcerated. And that's not all Chantel does. She has uh, educated herself since she got out of prison and just become a huge civic leader in St. Louis. And I started writing about her last year because despite the fact that her nonprofit is doing all of this work specifically with foster kids and is licensed by the United Way and is licensed by the state of Missouri. She wanted to do more because her daughter's grown. She wanted to become a foster parent. Mm -hmm. And the state said no. The same state that actually licenses her nonprofit to work with foster kids said no, she couldn't be a foster parent because of one of her old convictions. And it's an astounding uh, uh, tone-deaf you know, story from the state. But Chantel gives me hope because she told me that story. I wrote about that story. The ACLU got inspired by that story, filed an appeal on her behalf, and they argued it last week before the Court of Appeals. And I don't know if she's going to win. Um, but she's not going to stop helping kids, mm -hmm. and she's not going to stop being a representation of the fact that um, people who go to prison are still people, 
and they can still live great, tremendous lives contributing to our communities and doing far more for uh, kids and uh, our civic organizations than most of us do. And so Chantelle Fisher gives me hope, and I'm glad to be able to write about her story. Well, thank you so much yeah, for sharing that. And that's a great example, too, of the power that your journalism has had mm. in our community. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us as we dive into this civic moment. You can find the Gephardt Institute for Civic and Community Engagement on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to This Civic Moment everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to drop a five-star review and give us your feedback in the comments. You can also support This Civic Moment and the Gephardt Institute with your monetary gifts at gephardtinstitute.wistle.edu. We'll see you next time.